0: Thanks guys. All right, so I've got a, I've got a word for us tonight, and it, uh, some of it is gonna be, uh, it's gonna be in two parts. One is gonna be a massive encouragement. So my goal is to be very, very, very encouraging. Um, the other goal is to be very, very, very challenging. So tonight's tonight's challenge. Um, is going to mix with tonight's encouragement. I want to I do it both. I want to intermingle it. And it'll be obvious because I'm going to say both many, many, many times. So you won't be confused about which one, um, it, which one it is. One word quickly on rest. I, it's probably time for me to leave South Africa because I'm starting to understand Afrikaans. Uh, I, like before he said, I said, I, I thought to myself, I think he's saying no matter who you are or what you do or at what level you do it, everybody, all people need to rest. And all things need to have a rhythm of rest. I, that's what I was picking up. And I, come on, because I heard omal is rest. And so, um, it, one, one of my favorite scriptures is in Mark chapter five, where um, Jesus. Uh, G- Jesus. It says that it is, it's, it's actually quite funny in English. It says he spent all night healing people and casting demons out of demon possessed people. Well, that's really empowering. And so he says the next, the next morning, he knew the crowd was going to be larger. So he left before the sun came up, which was like 4.30 in the morning. He leaves before the sun comes up to go off to a solitary place to pray. And so the next morning, sure enough, the crowd had tripled. And uh, they don't know where he is, but Peter knew his spot. So Peter went and found him. And I'm quoting Peter here. He says, Jesus, what are you doing, man? Don't you know everybody's waiting on you? And Jesus says, really? Everybody's waiting on me? Then let us go somewhere else. I love that. I love that because I have felt that way and so have you. Really? They're waiting on me again? Then let us go somewhere else. And the point I'm making with that is that Jesus had rhythm in his life. Jesus knew when to be on and when to be off. Like, let's think about it as in terms of music. Music is not made up of notes. Music is made up of notes and I think the technical musical term is Rests. And so, music is not made up of simply playing everything in the right key. Music is made up of when to be on and when to be off, when to be playing and when to be not playing. Because it doesn't matter if you're in the right key. Some of the, some of the, when things start going awry in our life, what we often do, our default button is to say, "What am I doing wrong?" And oftentimes, it's not that we're doing anything wrong. We're playing the right notes in the right key, but our rhythm is off. Because to be productive, we have to have rhythm. To have rhythm, you have to know when to be on and when to be off. To know that that chore will be there when you come back tomorrow, because it's okay to let us go somewhere else. And so it's very important to engage in in that sort of thing. Now, before we get into tonight, first, a quick note about how truth works, okay? So... Truth works this way. So anytime we say God, the Bible, um, w- Scripture, w- w- whatever, we, we, we've got to first uh, see it this way, that all truth has a, has a Trinitarian structure to it, okay? And if we, and if we remove any of the three then we run into a problem. The first level of truth is the literal or the objective nature of truth, right? So that's pretty simple. That's something happened. Somebody told a story. So, and sometimes the objective can be fiction, right? So like white people have this thing about well, if it's not literal, it's not true. But that's, that's just not true at all. The parable of the prodigal son did not actually happen. It, it was a story that was actually told, but it was a fictional story to, to make a point, but it's literal in the sense that someone told the story, in this case, namely J- Jesus. So there's a literal aspect of truth, but then the second layer of truth is the subjective or the meaning, all right? So, so you don't want to ever just focus on the literal, because you could just focus on the literal and miss the meaning, and that's a problem. Um, I, I get asked all over the world to do Q&As for people under 30. And um, because what they're finding is is that people under thirty believe in Jesus, but they don't believe the Bible at all. They actually think the Bible is bupkis. and so and so the pastors are putting me in rooms full of these people who and they ask me anything they want about the scriptures. And so and so what what I this was a few weeks back. Somebody asked me. They said Shane is the cross and resurrection um, just symbolic or is it literal? Is it just symbolic or is it literal? And I said, well, that's That's a really dumb way to ask the question because If you're going, if you're going to say just, you got to say, is it just literal? Because the symbolic is bigger than the literal. There's always more meanings than there is the one event that happened. Like what's more important that Jesus literally rose or all the meanings that come from that? Like death doesn't get the last word. Jesus does. New creation could burst forth in the middle of this one. If you were wrong about death, what else could we be wrong about? That surprise can invade your world tomorrow. That your tomorrow is not simply a repeat of your yesterday because resurrection is here well that's far more compelling than doing scientific research on proving Jesus actually rose like if 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 all we and let's be clear we all believe Jesus actually rose the point is is that you could spend your whole life proving that literally and still miss the whole point of all the meanings right because if all you care about is literal resurrection why not just worship Lazarus right he rose first but there's no such thing as a Lazarite or Lazarene why because we know that it's not just about literal resurrection there's a meaning to it as well. And, and then, of course, the third level of truth is evental, all right? So philo- philosophers call it evental truth. Evental truth is, is not simply believing in something, And not simply affirming that something, but allowing that something to fundamentally shift the way we see our whole world. Like, the cross and resurrection should not be something we believe in. The cross and resurrection should be more profound than that. It should be something that fundamentally shifts the way we see our entire world. Let me see if I... will illustrate it this way. If your wife has a baby, right? So your wife has a baby... And they wipe the baby off. They do whatever they do when you have a baby. And then they they hand the baby to the dad. And the dad says, oh, she's the most beautiful girl in the whole world, right? Well, what if someone else was standing there and that someone else said, really? Prove that literally. Actually, there's going to be a lot of girls that are uglier than her. And there's going to be a lot of girls that are prettier than her. She's going to be somewhere in the middle. What you should be saying is, oh, she's the most average girl in the whole world, right? Well, you wouldn't even know what to say because you're not using literal language around that, 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 that girl. You're not speaking literally. You acknowledge her literal existence, but you're talking about the meaning. She means so much to you. She's actually redefined what beauty is, right? And let's say that the, the hospital's overcrowded. And let's say you have a baby. And they have to put someone else in the room with you. And they have a baby at the exact same time. And the exact same time, they wipe the baby off. And then at the exact same time, they hand the baby to the dad. And the exact same time, both fathers say, Oh, she's the most beautiful girl in the whole world. Are these two in conflict? Is that something to argue about now? No, they're both using meaning language. But then let's say you go home. And on your way home... Your neighbor down the road who you've never met has blue balloons in the front yard and a sign that says, welcome to the world, Billy. What assumption would you make? You wouldn't assume that they've had a baby as well. And it's a boy and his name is Billy, right? Now, you can fundamentally acknowledge the literal existence of that new baby without it meaning anything to you. Because your baby, you acknowledge that existence, but it also means something to you. But there's a third level, and that is evental. So if you, if you bring the baby home, and every night before you brought the baby home, you would go out with your friends, you would throw darts, and you would drink a beer. And then you would throw darts, and you would drink a beer. But then you bring the baby home. And the first night the baby's home, you go out with your mates, you throw darts, you drink beer. The next night, you go out with your mates, throw darts, you drink a beer. The third night, you throw darts, and you drink a beer, right? At some point, the wife is gonna say, Excuse me, we have a baby now, right? And you go, Of course. I 100% believe in the literal existence of that baby. And not just that, that baby's the most beautiful thing in the whole world to me. But until there's a fundamental shift in how we see our world, that truth of that new life has not come full circle with its full power yet, right? And that's what I want to talk to you about tonight. I want to talk to you about the cross and resurrection, but not as a belief, I want to talk to you about what it means to not just believe in the cross and resurrection, but allow the cross and resurrection to fundamentally shift our world. This was a real challenge in the first century because the crucifixion of Jesus surprised everybody. The followers of Jesus thought he was going to take over Rome. When Rome killed him, that was surprising. What was more surprising was resurrection. The Hebrew people had no file falter for resurrection. Matter of fact, they didn't even have a word for it. The, the, the Hebrew word for resurrection and the Hebrew word for surprise share the same root word. And that makes sense because if I died tonight and you came to my funeral on Thursday and I showed back up here on Sunday, surprise sort of cuts it. So when they were dealing with resurrection, they they struggled with putting words around it because there was no file folder for it. Which is why, in the New Testament alone, you probably find 15 different meanings for resurrection. And none of them are wrong. And none of them are in conflict with one another. It's both and. And so, one of the most popular passages on this is 1 Corinthians 15. And I'm going to show you the end of this. There you go. So, if you notice the reference... It's 1 Corinthians 15, 58. Now, what that means is is that he has spent 57 verses trying to explain resurrection. Now, 57 verses in Bible terms is a saga, okay? It is a long passage. It's the Shawshank Redemption. It is is an unbelievable... and, And you know what? If you read it, it actually doesn't make much sense. You could tell Paul is struggling for language. He's going... So you see, the corruptible must take on the incorruptible in order to inherit the imperishable. Which leads to this question. What? Right? He says things like, oh, so you see, because of resurrection, there's no need to baptize dead people anymore. Which leads to all kinds of questions like, was that ever a problem? Was there a business? Come, bring your corpses. We will be- that just doesn't make any sense. Like, What's going on here? But like all great rabbis, all great rabbis, they summarize their whole point in one statement at the end. And Paul's a great rabbi. And so verse 58 is, in case you missed the whole 57 verses of detail, here's what I'm trying to say. Here's what he says. Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourself fully to the work of the Lord, which is, by the way, what you're doing. Because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Here's what Paul is saying. It's not the doctrine of the cross of resurrection. But the meaning and the evental nature of resurrection means this. That if you're doing something for God, it is never wasted. You'll never waste your life doing something for God. Now here's my question. What if we believe that? Or do we believe that? What What if we put on an event... And we're expecting 200 people and 70 show up. Did we waste it that night? Or if we did it for God, is nothing ever in vain? You know who I feel the sorriest for in this room? Is the music people, All right? And I'm gonna tell you why. I travel the world and don't think it's leavened of wood. Don't think it's South Africa. It's worldwide. It's worldwide. When the musicians start the service, the place is one-third full. And by 20 minutes in, that's when everybody's there. But that's when the musicians are winding up, right? And here's the thing. Out of all the teams, the musicians are the ones that require the most preparation and practice, And I feel bad for the musicians. I'm waiting for a musician to lose his mind one day and go, where have you people been? Are you late to everything? We have practiced all week to do this, and you're not bothering to show up to the last song. What is wrong with you? Right? Yeah. Exactly. I'm waiting for a church to be brave enough to put the sermon first. And the musicians last, and people might would learn. But that's not going to happen, because I can tell you, it takes about 12 hours to write a sermon. Sermon writing is spending 12 hours with four researchers to put together a talk that's going to take 40 minutes to deliver so that people can criticize you who haven't thought about it. Anyway. So here's my question. If you're a musician and half the people don't bother to show up, are you wasting your time? The answer is, if you do, maybe. If you're doing it for God, though, nothing is wasted. What if you start a business and it doesn't work? Nothing is wasted. What if you give five years to a relationship and they leave you? Nothing is wasted. This is a fundamental way to see our world that if we're doing what we're doing for God, then nothing is wasted. My first encouragement to you is this, and it's the only encouragement. The only and biggest encouragement I'm gonna give you is this. If you're sitting in this room and you're doing what you're doing at this church because you're doing it for God, then if it works, it works. If it doesn't work, it doesn't work. But it is not wasted. Does, does that mean that you shouldn't correct things? No. Does that mean that you shouldn't always be looking to make things better? Absolutely not. Leadership is challenging the process to make things better. But in terms of how we evaluate whether we wasted our life or whether we gave our life to something that's meaningful, if we believe in resurrection in a way that changes the way we see our world, then whether it works or whether it doesn't work, you never waste your life my encouragement to you tonight is this that if you're doing what you're doing for God whether it works or whether it doesn't work you have not wasted your life because when you do it for God nothing is in vain now if I can point out something that should be obvious the guy that wrote this died in 57 AD having not known if anybody bought his message Paul died at the hands of Nero before he knew the church was going to take off. Paul died at the hands of Nero before he knew any person was going to still be sitting here talking about his writings. Paul died. Paul was saying this before he knew it was going to work. Now that is inspiring. Which leads me to this. There's a great passage in the Old Testament that tells a story. It's a very important story to Jewish history. It's so important, actually, that it's told twice in two different books from two different perspectives. Let me see if I could set it into uh, into context. There's a guy named David, he kills a giant guy, gets very popular with everybody except the king. The king starts chasing him around. When you become the enemy of the king, you also become the enemy of all the king's friends turns out that David was quite a bad dude. Uh, David killed lions, killed bears, uh, killed giant warriors. He was very adept at hand-to-hand combat. Um, he was just a bad dude. He was Jack Bauer on speed. Um, very, very, very assassin-like, very violent um, sort of man. Well, what you find in the story is that as good as he is, at hand-to-hand combat, he sucks at hiding, right? Because everywhere he goes, somebody recognizes him, right? And so, and so what ends up happening is, is he ends up in front of Akish, the king of Gath, and, um, and Achish is Saul's friend, and so to save his own life, he pretends to be insane. Um, he, he scratches his face, he starts scratching the walls, he lets spit run down his beard, um, which is a great survival technique, by the way. I, I have, a, um, I I have a a cousin that spent more time in prison than he's not been in prison. And I asked him one time, I said, if I get arrested, what should I do to survive? And he said, oh, here's what you do. He's being very serious. He said, walk in. He said, and act crazy. Get a crazy look in your eye. Walk up to the first guy you see and try to bite him. He said, just go. He said, "Then scratch your face and go, oh, yeah, bring it. He said, they'll leave you alone. They'll think you're insane, right? And I said, oh, I'll just not get arrested. that would be better, right? (laughs) So, So that's what happens in this story. And David... David leaves and goes to a cave called Agilom. The problem is, is that 400 people knew where he was going and met him there. Which once again, you really, really are bad at hiding. When, When you're going somewhere and 400 people already know where you're going, that's bad. Now this is a story that gets told twice. Let me show you both. Here we go. So David left Gath and escaped to the cave of Adullam, where his brothers and his father's household heard about it. They went down to meet him there. Now watch this. And all those who were in distress or in debt or discontented gathered around him and he became their commander. Think about that sentence. All those who were in distress or in debt or discontented and he became their leader. What's that called? When distressed, indebted, discouraged people come around you what's that called that's called pastoring that's called ministry leadership that's what that's called that's what's happening here he instantly has a church of 400 distressed indebted discontented people and he becomes their leader that's you that's me that's what you do now watch watch what happens next slide from there, David went to Mizpah and Moab and said to the king of Moab, would you let my father and mother come stay with me until, to, with you until you, I learn what God will have for me? Right? So, in other words, I can't have my mom in a cave with 400 men with issues. <laughs> it's not going to work, right? Um, so, so he left them with the king of Moab, and, and they stayed with him as long as David was in the stronghold. But the prophet Gad came to David and said, do not stay in the stronghold, go to the land of Judah. So David went to the, to the forest of Hareth. So just a quick geography lesson. David is in a cave called Agilom, which is high. Let's say it's here. That mountain goes down into a valley called Rephime. And on the other end of the valley is Bethlehem, which is where David is from. So David's here, goes down to a valley of Rephime, and that's where David's from is Bethlehem. Now, here's what happened. The Philistines heard that the guy that killed their warrior was from Bethlehem. So instead of starting a war with Israel... What they did was they laid siege to Bethlehem thinking if we kill people in there, we'll take vengeance and kill his family or something. And so, so what's happening is, is the Philistines have David's hometown surrounded and David's in the cave. All right? So quick review to make sure we're following. Next slide. I promise this is going somewhere. So David is being hunted. He's surrounded by people with issues and his own family. So Things are kind of complicated. The enemy has his hometown under assault. Now... That's the story from 1 Samuel 21. It gets told again in 2 Samuel. Here's that version of the story from a different perspective. David, during harvest time, three of the 30 chief warriors came to David at the cave of Adullam. So there it is again. With a band of Philistines was encamped in the valley of Rephaim. At that time, David was in the stronghold and the Philistine garrison was in Bethlehem. And David longed for water and said, Oh... That someone would get me a drink of water from the well near the gate of Bethlehem. Now, let's ask a question. And I'm not trying to trick you here. Is David being literal? No. David is looking out, longing for simpler times. Remember when David was a shepherd and he thought he was being overlooked and he asked God to promote him? And then God promoted him? And he ended up in a cave with people with issues? Sometimes you think you want God to promote you, but when God promotes you, it's not what you thought. That's what's going on here. And if you're if you're growing as a leader, we all have times where we long for simpler times. All of us. Oh. Re- remember when our business was small and growing and we wanted God to grow our business. And now we've got 70 employees and the tax people care about what we do and Oh, I think I want water back from when we were there. Remember when your ministry was small? It was just like you and your family and the mother-in-law that didn't like you too much. You think, God, grow our ministry. God, grow it. God, grow it. And then God grows it, and you've got more pressure than ever before. And you look back and go, oh, I just think I want water from where I came from. This is that. David was a shepherd who wanted God to promote him. God promotes him and it wasn't what he thought. He ends up in a cave with people with issues and he uses a metaphor. I just wanna go back and drink from the well I always drank from. I will give all this up if I could just go back and do that. He's using a metaphor, right? Now, three of these guys take him serious, right? And watch what they do. So three of the mighty warriors broke through the Philistine lines, drew water from the well near the gate of Bethlehem, and carried it back to David. This is what I picture in this. Do you remember the movie? It's probably 20 years ago, National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation, right? And Clark Griswold, um, he, spends, he spends his yearly bonus before he actually got it to put a pool in. And then when it came on Christmas Eve, the boss had decided to end Christmas bonuses, and he got a Fruit of the Month Club, Right? And he loses his mind and he says, what I wouldn't do for my good for nothing boss to be brought here from his posh mansion across town in his pajamas with a red bow wrapped around him. And the crazy cousin Eddie goes, are you serious, Clark? And he goes and kidnaps the guy. That's what's going on here. David is speaking metaphorically and three of these lunatics take him serious. Watch what happens. So they bring this water back to David, but he refused to drink it. Now, that's 20 Ks one way through enemy lines. That's 40 Ks, round trip, fighting through enemy lines to get this guy water. And his response was, what then? What do you do when you've given your life to serve a group of people and they don't accept it? That is the test of leadership. The test of leadership is not when they're patting you on the back. The test of leadership is when you put on an event and they don't show up. When you preach a sermon, you poured your life into this sermon and you know if people will just apply it, it'll change their life. And yet you preach it and you preach it and you preach it. And then at the end, somebody goes, that. Because then we start thinking, am I wasting my life? And the question is, did you do what you do for God? Or did you do what you do so that they would drink it? What happens in this story, these three guys risked their life to get David water. And David's response was far from compelling. David was like, oh, no, I'm not touching this. If you're those three guys, what are you thinking? I just walked 40 Ks through enemy lines to get you water and you poured out. What is happening here? Watch what happens. But he refused to drink it. Instead, he poured it out before the Lord and said, far be it from me, Lord, to do this. Is it not the blood of the men who went at the risk of their lives and David would not drink what they brought him? Now, a quick two-minute summary of the story and then we're gonna get to the application because we don't just wanna believe something. We want to have it change the way we see things. Next slide. So that is Agilom. That's a party, isn't it? (laughs) Hey, sweetie, Vegas or Agilum? Agilum it is. You know how hot that would be? 400 people in there, right? Next slide. So Adjulam was a fortified city to protect Judah and refugees in times of danger. It was a series of caves and tunnels that would have made it very hard to find an attack. This is why Afghanistan um, is why Afghanistan's impossible to conquer, right? Um, Alexander the Great conquered the whole world. He got to Afghanistan, went around it. Um, Genghis Khan conquered most of Asia. He got to Afghanistan and he went around it right because you're always covered from an elevated position. David is there as a refugee from a very pow- um, a very, very jealous, powerful man. Um, Adulum is two miles from where David defeated Goliath, so from that elevation he could have seen where it all started. He'd be thinking, if I'd have just minded my own business, I wouldn't be here right now, honestly. if I just wouldn't have brought my brother's cheese, honestly. This would not have started. Uh, um, David is surrounded by marginalized, discontented, and indebted people. That's not very energizing. David grew up in Bethlehem. Bethlehem is 12 miles from Adjelam. That's 20 kilometers, right? David seems to be using a figure of speech longing for simpler days, right? Oh, I just want to go back to what I always had. Next slide. Three of these guys with issues take him serious and walk 12 miles or 20 kilometers, mostly behind enemy lines to get him water. After walking 40 kilometers through enemy lines, David refuses to drink it and he pours it out. All that to get to this. David turns the act from duty to an act of worship. Those three guys went because it was their duty to serve their commander. But David didn't see it that way. What they saw as duty, David saw as sacrifice. And if it's sacrifice, then it's holy and it can't be touched. Which leads me to this question. My encouragement to you tonight as leaders is this. If you're doing it for God, you've never wasted your life. My second question, which is the challenge, is this. Are you doing what you're doing at this church because it's your duty to serve God? Or are you doing what you're doing at this church because you see your life as a living sacrifice and you're simply offering that gift back to God as a living sacrifice? Here's the problem. If you're doing what you're doing out of duty, it's not wrong. It's not wrong to serve God out of duty. It's not. It's not wrong. It's just not wise. Because if you're doing it out of duty, they had better buy what you're selling. They had better drink what you give them. They had better turn up to the event or you will feel like you wasted your life. If you're doing what you're doing out of duty and it doesn't work, then you've wasted your life. But if you're doing what you're doing because you see your life as a living sacrifice and you're offering your gift back to God as a sacrifice, then whether they drink it or whether they don't drink it, whether they receive it or whether they pour it out it doesn't matter because the sacrifice makes it sacred regardless and because the sacrifice makes it sacred you've never wasted your life nothing is wasted now let's put some serious language around this next slide a couple things one sometimes you're in a center of god's will in a cave with people with issues <laughs> like if you find yourself in a cave with people with issues our thought is immediately what did i do wrong sometimes nothing At this point, what has David done wrong? Nothing. He acted in faith. He brought his brother's cheese. He stood up when everybody else didn't want to. He acted heroically. And even in all of that, he ends up in a cave with people with issues. Listen, if you end up in a cave with people with issues, it's okay to ask, what did I do wrong? But if the answer is nothing, then maybe you're right where God wants you to be, in a cave with people with issues. Uh, Second, sometimes people misunderstand you. You're speaking in metaphor, and they take you literally, right? As a communicator, that will happen all the time. Next slide. As you grow, there are times you will long for simpler times. Like, remember when it wasn't so complicated? Remember that? Oh, I just want to go back there. I just want to go back. Remember when we were first married? Remember that? Remember remember how broke we were? Remember? And it didn't matter. It, It really didn't matter how broke we were because we loved each other so much, and there was, like, you know, tons of fun, and... And all this. So we, had like, we, had like, we had like three rooms and 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 everything was just saying We ate we ate ramen noodles and soup all the time. And and, and 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 then things got more complicated. We started making more money. And we decided, you know what we decided to do? We decided to, to, to sign up for 30 years of entirely too much pressure um, by paying every month for rooms we never actually walk in so that people that we don't actually like will think we're more successful than we actually are. And that sounded like a good idea at the time. And then you know what happened? We thought that it was a good idea to bring new little lives into our world. Remember that? Remember? Remember, we thought somewhere along the line, we thought, you know what we should do? Here's what we should do. We should introduce people to our family who do no giving and all take and and yeah they bring nothing to the table they just eat and eat and eat and take and take and take and energy and energy and energy and and it seems like it seems like they work in tandem to irritate us particularly at bedtime, right? It's almost like if you have three kids, they they discuss it between themselves in the bedroom, "Hey, you're going to take 9 to 11 and I'm going to take 11 to 1, and we're going to keep these dudes up all night long." This is going to be a blast. Remember 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 when we were remember we were first married and we thought the first thing was a good idea, then the second thing, and then we thought the third thing was a good idea, and then we had three of those third things. Remember that? Remember that? And now it's like, "Oh, I want to drink from that other water again. This is why healthy marriages, despite kids, regularly have times where they get away from the children and go drink from the old well. It just works. Let's say it this way. Remember we had no money, so taxes were not an issue? <laughs> Remember that? Remember when tax season didn't matter because SARS doesn't, SARS doesn't care about people who don't make a lot? Remember that? Remember that? Remember we had small houses, small bills, but we were still happy? Remember that? Remember that? Remember that? Next slide. Far be it from me, Lord. D- David saw this act as sacred. He took their act of duty. They thought it was duty. And he says, no, 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 it's, be- it's beyond duty. This is sacrifice. This is sacred. And if it's sacrifice, then it makes it sacred. And he does something that was very common in the ancient world. Just one quick thing for you Bible nerds. He, he-, he does something called the drink offering, which was a very common thing at the first of every month that they would have to do to acknowledge that everything comes from God. Like here's the scripture for it if you need it, or you could just take my word for it. Numbers 28, with each bull, there's to be a drink offering, a half a hen of wine, with the ram, a third of a hen, and with each lamb, a quarter hen. This is the monthly burnt offering to be made at the new moon each during each year. Remember, Hebrew, Hebrew calendars were lunar cycles, not solar cycles. So the first of the month, you would do this thing. David does something they would understand. You saw this as duty, but I see it as sacrifice. And if it's sacrifice, I can't touch it. I can't touch it. If it's sacrifice, it's holy, it's holy. If you're doing what you're doing for God out of duty, it's not wrong, it's just not wise, it had better work. But if you're doing what you're doing because you see your life as a living sacrifice, then whether they drink it, whether they don't drink it, the sacrifice makes it sacred regardless. Let's say it this way, the sacrifice makes it sacred. And if the sacrifice makes it sacred, then nothing is wasted. You know, we just know this inside. I, I met a lady today that's uh, going to the trans vault. as a missionary. Trans guy. Excuse me. Excuse me. The tr- the, sorry. I'm, whatever. The, the, um, yeah. Okay. Oh, well, see, I knew that. Come on. <laughs> it's just inside. It's just that knowledge deep down in there. Um, and here's the thing. Here's the thing. I, I was very moved by her. Um. And here's the thing, if, if she's doing that because it's, oh, it's my duty to serve God. I'm gonna go do this because it's my duty to serve God. God died for me, it's my duty. Nothing wrong with that, but whatever you're doing down there better work. But if you say, you know what, uh-uh. I've got all these gifts and all these talents, and I see my life as a living sacrifice, and I'm gonna offer my gifts to the people of the trans sky as, as, a, as a gift back to you, Lord. If, if it's on my life, you, you can use it. Then whether it works or whether it doesn't work, it doesn't matter because the sacrifice makes it sacred regardless. You are not wasting your life. Same with me. I preached every day from February 1st Till last week, except eight. And you know what? 99% of people like me. They do. Because, honestly. <laughs> if you sleep in and drink Coke, you too can one day have a body like this. And here's the thing. Here's the thing. 9,900 emails. Shane, oh, thanks. Oh, da da da. But it's the one faceless coward plonker that you end up. That's not. That's not a swear word, is it? Oh, Okay, good. In you no, know, like in 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 Australia, New Zealand, it just means uh, a a a doofus, you know, um, like uh, goober, you know. Moonyapupo, uh, Um And here's the thing: if I'm teaching because it's my duty to serve God, then you better love it. But if I do it out of sacrifice, then whether you drink it or whether you don't, it's not wasted because the sacrifice makes it sacred regardless. My, my encouragement to you is that if you're doing what you're doing for God, you'll never waste your life. My challenge is, is to ask yourself a deep question. This is a deep question. Am I doing what I'm doing out of duty to God or do I see my life as a living sacrifice and I'm doing it because of that? The fundamental question there will determine how you evaluate results. And we just know this inside. Like, like, what about the caregiver? What about the caregiver taking care of a blind man in his 20s? What if you saw that today? What if you went by Superspar and there was a lady that say, let's say she's 58 and she's leading a man of 26 around by the arm, and let's say he's a little uh, mentally handicapped and and blind, and she's being so nice to him. She's like, okay, we're gonna turn right now, and he's he's just struggling getting around. What assumptions would you make? You would assume that was his mother. And you would assume she's taking care of a blind, mentally handicapped son. And what would you think if I told you? You know what I did? I got sick of watching that. So I walked up to her and I said, lady, what's the matter with you? If he doesn't get better, you're wasting your life. You've only got one life and you're already 58. It's on the downhill slope now. What? Hey, you'd bet if he doesn't get better, you've wasted your life. What, what would you call me? The money of Right. right? It's, it's, that's, that's crazy because here's what we know. Here's what we know. If she's doing what she's doing because it's my duty to help my son, then if he doesn't get better, she did waste her life. But if she sees her life as a living sacrifice and she's showing him love because of that, then whether he gets better or whether he doesn't get better, her sacrifice makes that holy regardless. Or what about the daughter taking care of the aging parents? I, 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 know, I know someone personally who had a Sony record contract. Um, she's the greatest singer I've ever heard personally, ever, ever. So good that Sony Records offered her a record deal. And subsequent to that, her father got early onset um, dementia, and um, he's 54. And she abandoned the record deal at 27 years old to go take care of her father. I asked her, I said, why did you do that? She said, because I want my father to have the greatest care he could possibly have till he died. Now, what, would, what, what if someone said to her, "You're 27 Sony record contract, what are you doing? If he doesn't get better, you're wasting the greatest moment of your life. No, if she's doing it out of duty, he'd better get better. But if she sees her life as a living sacrifice, whether he gets better or whether he dies, it doesn't matter because the sacrifice makes it sacred regardless. But what about when the business doesn't work? So you give your whole world to this business. Seven years and it fell flat. You think, God, I just wasted seven years of my life. No, you didn't. If you did it out of duty, you absolutely did. But if you saw your life as a living sacrifice and you were offering these gifts back to God, then your sacrifice makes it sacred regardless and nothing is wasted. Let's say it this way. So I gave 20 years to this relationship and they left. I wasted 20 years of my life. Yes, you did. Yes, you did. If you were a wife out of duty and he leaves, you wasted your life. But if you were offering everything on your life as a living sacrifice to be as loving and as supportive as possible to somebody else, then whether he leaves or whether he stays, you did not waste your life because the sacrifice makes it sacred regardless. If you were a husband out of duty and she leaves, then you wasted your life. But if you saw your life as a husband as a living sacrifice, if she stays, great. If she leaves, it doesn't mean you wasted your life because the sacrifice makes it sacred regardless. I gave it all, and they didn't respond like I thought they would. This happens to every preacher in the history of the world. <laughs> we we get up ten hours of preparation, and somebody somewhere is going to pour that bottle out. And that that's when the test of leadership is when you put on a children's church thing, and and ninety parents tell you how much it meant, and one. Yells at you for something. It's that. It's if you're doing it out of duty, then you've wasted your life. But if you do it out of sacrifice, then the sacrifice makes it sacred regardless of result. Um, I raised my kids the best I could and they turned out terrible. <laughs> I, I, was, um, I was talking to some, there's a, some friends of mine had a baby the other day. And, it was like, and I mean like freshly baked baby. Like, you know, like, 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 oh, like it looked like it just came out of, you yeah, know, like this big. And I, and of course, of course, they're happy, you know, and I said, uh, I said, oh, this is congratulations. They said, you know what we're going to do, Pastor Shane? I said, what? They said, we're going to raise this kid like Proverbs says, sort of guarantee it'll turn out great. I was like, okie dokie, because, <laughs> because that Proverbs are not promises, they're general wisdom observations. And so. Uh, because we all know someone who had four children raised in the same house by the same parents at the same church, went to the same school and three of them are awesome and one of them's a lunatic, right? And so you look at the you say, man, I wasted my life with you. Yes, you did. If you parented out of duty, you absolutely did. But if you saw your life as a living sacrifice, your sacrifice makes it sacred regardless. Let's say it this way. Maybe it's the love that makes it sacred. If you're doing what you're doing out of love, then whether they drink it or pour it out, The sacrifice makes it sacred. Let's say it this way. David sees the world sacramentally. The sacrifice makes it holy. It doesn't have to work perfectly to be holy because the sacrifice makes it that way. How should we then rethink how we measure results and happiness? As leaders, you gotta always be looking to make things better. But in terms of whether you feel like you're wasting your life or not, it comes down to this. Do we believe in resurrection? And are we doing it out of sacrifice or out of duty? That's the question. My encouragement to you tonight is you're not wasting your life. I'm so thankful to all of you that you do what you do to make leavened of wood centurion work. And if you're doing it for God, you're not wasting your life. My question is, is have you stopped and thought about, am I doing this out of duty or am I doing this out of sacrifice? If you're the children's pastor, if you're doing it out of duty, all the parents better love it. But if you're doing it out of sacrifice, you're offering your gift back, then the sacrifice makes it sacred regardless If you're going to be a missionary in the trans sky, if you're doing it out of duty, it better work. But if you're doing it to offer your gift as a sacrifice, then your sacrifice makes it sacred regardless. If you're the worship leaders, just the fact that half the room doesn't show up on time. If you're doing it out of duty, you'll think you wasted your time. But if you're up there offering your musical gift back to God as a living sacrifice, then whether they show up or whether they don't, the sacrifice makes it sacred regardless. But my God, show up on time. Let's say it this way. Let's, let's, Let's wrestle a bit. Sermons are not meant to be agreed with nor disagreed with. They're meant to be wrestled with. So here we go. Where do we live with the delusion of guarantees or control? Is there any place right now that you think, if I just do A, B, and C, then it automatically works out? That's just a lie. We don't get guarantees in this world. We don't. Some people of faith who've done nothing wrong get cancer. And there's a, there's a subtle intimation of if you just had enough faith, you wouldn't be going through that. If you just had enough faith, your marriage wouldn't be doing this. If you just had enough faith, that child wouldn't be off the rails. If you just had enough faith, you wouldn't be sick. And that is a ridiculous thought. It's a horrendous thing. It's crap crapimus. It's not where we want to be. Do we live with the delusion of guarantees or control? Or maybe I could say it this way. Where do we need to repent of the sin of certainty? Certainty is not a friend of faith. It's an enemy of faith. And by the way, doubt is not an enemy of faith. Sight is. It doesn't say we walk by faith and not by doubt. It says we walk by faith and not by sight. Sometimes doubt creates a question that solidifies faith. And so where do we need to repent of that? Let's say it this way. Does it have to work out perfectly in order to feel it was profitable? Or or, or can we embrace the process? Maybe we can say it this way. What do we need to hand over to God as a sacrifice that makes the outcome sacred regardless? Maybe we say it this way. All we get is a gift. Have we offered it regardless of outcomes? Just give the gift and let God do the rest. I figured I would illustrate this so you'd understand what I mean. This is a a, a ritual. Um, It's just a ritual. Um, and it's really helped me. And if it's helped me, it might help you. If it won't help you, don't worry about it. It's just a ritual. Um, every Saturday night before I go to bed, um, I do a few things. First, I, I, I out loud with my mouth, forgive anybody that hurt me that week. Um, because I don't want to carry this week's hurt to next week. Right? So I do that. The second thing I do is I spend five minutes in gratitude only for what's in my right now. Right? So I'm not believing God for something else. I, I take note of, if God didn't do one more thing for my life, my life is awesome because of this, 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 this and this. It's really, really helped me. The other thing I do is I go through the gifts on my life, and I out loud with my mouth, I offer them back to God. right? So just to, so you understand, this is, this is what it looks like. Lord, thank you for my voice. It's a gift. Please keep it going, because I'm literally not good at anything else. If I lost my voice, I'm stuffed. I don't know how to do anything else, so, but I'm going to offer my voice back to you. If you can use this, I offer it back as a sacrifice. All week, I'm going to teach as a sacrifice to you. Oh, Lord, thanks for my mind. Thank you that it works different than other people's. It makes me special. Thank you for that. If you can use my mind, I offer it back to you. Oh, thanks for my memory. Yeah, I have almost a photographic memory. Um, I, I don't have any memory for hearing, which is why I'm terrible with names unless you have a name tag. And then I can take a picture of your face and your name tag, I won't forget it. I, I can close my eyes and read pages of books. Um, that's a gift. I didn't ask for that. I didn't deserve it. It's a gift, unless well, unless you're trying to forget something. Then it's terrible. I accidentally saw my granny naked once, and um, yep, it's there. There it is. Oh, 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 oh. She looked like a hound dog in a shower cap, like. Nothing was where it was supposed to be. I, I can't believe. See, it's there. See, it's there. The photographic memory is helpful. Unless you're trying to forget something. So, I, so, so thank, you, thank you, Lord, for that. If you can use my memory, you can use it. Oh, my legs are healthy. Thanks for that. You know, seven years ago, they had to do a 14000 U.S. dollar surgery on my legs. 14,000 U.S., 170,000 rand or something to fix my legs because the blood was pooling in my feet and not getting back to my heart uh, because I was sitting in economy class too much. Um, and you teach Sunday school. Ooh. Um, I'm joking. It's, it's a metaphor. Um, and, and so they had, to, they had to go in and they had to run a wire from my foot to my groin and, and they had to they, they had to heat that wire up to 1500 degrees Celsius and kill that vein and then reroute the blood in my foot to a different vein source to get back to my heart properly. And now my feet are the right color again. They they were blue. They were as blue as your shirt. And they, the doctor couldn't find a pulse in my foot. It was a real problem, you know. And it was from it was from the airplane, um, but it's fixed now. So if God can use these legs, I'll just offer it back. All we get's a gift. That's all you get. You get your memory, you get your, your teaching gift, your, your, whatever your gift is, your artistic ability, your musicianship, whatever that is. You, all we get is a gift. We don't get guarantees. Let's say it this way. Control is an illusion. Guarantees are a deception. Where have deceptions and illusions determined our evaluations of where we are? This is how I know when I've crossed the line from sacrifice to duty, which I do all the time, and so do you. When I've crossed the line from sacrifice to duty, I find myself getting manipulative to get results. Because if if I'm doing it out of duty, you better respond. And if you're not responding and I'm doing it out of duty, I need to manipulate you to respond. That's my litmus test. When I find myself getting manipulative to get response, I know I've crossed the line into duty. I need to get back into sacrifice. Because it's not wrong to do it out of duty. It's just not wise. It's just not wise. Because I don't get to control the outcome. I get to preach and you get to respond, but your response is not up to me. I can't tell you how much of that's done to free my life up. Next slide. Where do we try to live in the illusion of controlling the outcome instead of just offering the gift? That's all we're called to do. Offer the gift, leave all the results to God. That's it. That's it. Where is God when the child makes the wrong decision? The business fails or the divorce happens? Does God only get the credit on the good end or does the sacrifice make it sacred regardless? Maybe we could bring this to a close with one question. Next slide. Why this waste. May we never ask that again. May we believe in resurrection so much that it fundamentally shifts the way we see our world. So if they drink it, they drink it. If they don't, they don't. But if you did it out of sacrifice, the sacrifice makes it sacred and nothing is wasted. Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm, give yourself fully to the work of the Lord, for you know that nothing you do for God is ever in vain. That's the message tonight. You've never wasted your life. you are given your life for God. If it works, it works. If it doesn't, it doesn't. But the sacrifice makes it sacred regardless. I hope you've really enjoyed tonight. I hope you drink it. I hope you change your life. But if you pour it out, it's okay. I did it out of sacrifice. And the sacrifice makes it sacred regardless. Until I see you again next year, grace and peace, everybody. God bless.